0: Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hello, this is Daphne, and I will be reading the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, January 11th. We start with the weather. Today, mostly sunny, high of 45 Tonight, clear to partly cloudy, low of 31. Tomorrow, Friday, mostly sunny, breezy in the afternoon, high of 43, low of 34. Saturday, very windy, heavy showers in the morning, high of 55, low of 33. Sunday, breezy in the morning, partly sunny and colder, high of 38 low of 26, and Monday, a couple of showers possible, ice at night, high of 37, low of 31. And for our hours of daylight, it's getting a little longer. The sun rose today at 7.07 and will set at 4.31. That will give us 9 hours and 24 minutes of daylight. And on to the lottery. For the numbers game, drawn yesterday, Wednesday, January 10th. The midday drawing, the numbers are 8669. Again, numbers game, midday drawing, 8669. And the evening drawing from yesterday, Wednesday, January the 10th. The evening drawing numbers are zero four one seven. Again, zero four one seven. For Powerball, drawn on Wednesday, January the 10th, the numbers are 25, 40, 43, 48, 50, and the Powerball is 11. Again, those numbers for Powerball 25, 40, 43, 48, 50, with a Powerball of 11. For mass cash, drawn yesterday, January the 10th, the numbers are 10, 13, 16, 18, and 20. Again, for mass cash, 10, 13, 16, 18, 20. For mega millions, drawn on Tuesday, the numbers are 12, 15, 32, 33, 53, and the Mega Ball is 24. Again, for Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, January the 9th, the numbers are 12, 15, 32, 33, 53, and the Mega Ball is 24. For Mega Bucks, drawn yesterday, the numbers are 19, 20, 25 28 40 and 42 again mega drawn Wednesday January the 10th 19 20 25 28 40 and 42 and lucky for life drawn yesterday Wednesday January the 10th the numbers are 2 3 15 22 30 And the lucky ball is 14. Again, the numbers are 2, 3, 15, 22, 30, with the lucky ball of 14. And now for the news. From the front page of the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, January 11th, the lead story is entitled Messy But Not Awful. Cape Cod lashed by storm, but dodges big trouble, and that's reported by Eric Williams for the Cape Cod Times. The main course of Tuesday's night storm, high winds, and heavy rain was conveniently served while most of Cape Coders were asleep. By daybreak on Wednesday, conditions had improved, with only a few scattered power outages around the peninsula. According to the National Weather Service, Locations around the Cape received approximately 1.5 to 2.5 inches of rain. Wind gusts from the storm reached 65 miles an hour at Chatham and Dennis, according to the National Weather Service, with a 64-miles-per-hour gust reported in Wellfleet. A stormy desert arrived around the time of high tide on Wednesday morning, with flooding on Nobska Road and Surf Drive in Falmouth and Commercial Street in Providence's East End. A section of road near 600 Commercial Street in Provincetown was temporarily closed to traffic after water flooded the area. But it could have been worse, according to an email from Dan Riviello, Provincetown's assistant town manager. Quote, thankfully, the impacts from the storm were not as damaging as they could have been, wrote Riviello. While the wind and rain were very strong overnight, the wind's speed and direction died down significantly this morning ahead of high tide, which prevented any significant coastal flooding in the east end. Close quote. While we may have dodged real trouble this time around, the weather jukebox seems poised to play another unpleasant tune. According to the National Weather Service forecast discussion, quote, dry weather follows for Thursday and Friday before another significant storm will impact the region Friday night into Saturday, bringing another round of strong winds and heavy rain, Close quote. Here's the Hyannis forecast from the National Weather Service. Thursday, sunny with a high near 43, southwest wind, 13 to 15 miles an hour. Thursday night, mostly clear, with a low around 33. West wind, 10 to 14 miles per hour. Friday, sunny, with a high near 44. West wind, 6 to 10 miles per hour, becoming south in the afternoon. Friday, rain likely, then rain and possibly a thunderstorm after 1 a.m., low around 35. Windy, with a southeast wind of 7 to 15. 17 miles per hour, increasing to 21 to t- 31 miles per hour. Winds could gust as high as 46 miles per hour. The chance of precipitation is 100%. Saturday, rain mostly before noon, high near 53, windy with a southeast wind of 30 to 37 miles per hour, becoming southwest in the afternoon winds could gust as high as 55 miles per hour. The chance of precipitation is 90%. Saturday night, partly cloudy with a low of around 30, windy with a west wind of 29 to 31 miles per hour with gusts as high as 45 miles per hour, and Sunday, mostly sunny, with a high near 38, windy with a west wind of 24 to 28 miles per hour, With gusts as high as 41 miles per hour. And continuing with weather stories from the front page of the Cape Cod Times severe weather to continue across the US. And this is reported by Anthony Robledo and Christopher Kahn for USA Today. Flood warnings and high wind advisories were active from New Jersey up through Maine Wednesday as the deadly winter storm that has killed at least five people and affected practically every every state in the continental U.S. dumped rain across the region. A break was in view. Snowfall quieted over the Midwest, and the storms rained and wind are set to subside as the system moved out of the Northeast Wednesday afternoon, the Weather Service said. But, alas, the deadly storm that's raking the eastern United States this week is just the warm-up, so to speak, for what's to come, a potential bomb cyclone blizzard for the Midwest, an arctic blast courtesy of the polar vortex and possibly the first real East Coast snowstorm in a long while. And that next wave of winter has already gotten started. Dangerous blizzard conditions persisted in the Pacific Northwest Wednesday, where heavy fall snowfall made for treacherous travel along mountain roads in the Cascades and Olympics. That storm, carrying Arctic air, will continue to bring storm to the region through Thursday before making its way to the Midwest later this week, the National Weather Service said. The storm that came through in the first part of this week affected more than 2 million square miles. Three tornadoes were confirmed in the Florida Panhandle with wind gusts as high as 106 miles per hour. As heavy rain moved out of the Mid-Atlantic and New England regions early Wednesday, forecasters continued to warn of flooding risk with, what, with up to three inches of rain landing on highly saturated snow-covered land. Over 150 rivers throughout the region were at flood stage Wednesday, according to the Weather Service. Authorities in Connecticut reported a dam break on the Yantic River that led officials to cut power to thousands of households, quote, to avoid potentially catastrophic damage to our infrastructure, close quote, Norwich Public Utilities said in a social media post. More than 250,000 utility customers across New York State, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania lacked power Wednesday morning. Winds were recorded at over 50 miles per hour throughout New England and exceeded 60 miles per hour near the coast. Many school districts delayed the start of classes or canceled them altogether because of the storm. More than 330 flights were delayed and 150 canceled, 115 canceled midday Wednesday, according to FlightAware. Airports in New York City, New Jersey, Boston, and Miami accounted for most of the travel problems. Nearly 2,000 migrants who had been living in tents in Brooklyn, New York, were brought into a high school Tuesday ahead of the intense wind and rain. The school's students had remote instruction Wednesday. Authorities began taking families back to Floyd Bennett Field after winds abated at around 5 a.m., In the Midwest, although snowfall had lessened Wednesday morning, many remained without power. In Michigan, more than 44,000 utility customers lacked power amid freezing temperature. And after a mostly calm and mild December, Mother Nature is making up for it with a stormy and cold January, said AccuWeather Senior Meteorologist Alex Sosnowski. The next storm, expected to careen across the Midwest, south and east, late Thursday into Saturday, could be even stronger than Tuesdays, bringing a second round of snow, strong winds, severe thunderstorms and flooding rainfall, forecasters said. Meteorologist Ryan Mao said on X, formerly Twitter, that this next storm could rapidly intensify into a rare overland bomb cyclone. A bomb cyclone is basically a winter hurricane in terms of intensity. Snow is likely to pile up in several big Midwestern cities, including Chicago, Detroit, and Kansas City. As much as one to two feet of snow is possible in some areas, AccuWeather said, which would make travel difficult. As with Tuesday's storm, severe thunderstorms are forecast to rumble across the south and southeast with a risk of hail and tornadoes, the Storm Storm Prediction Center warned. Also, a repeat, more strong winds and flooding rain are are in the forecast for the sodden mid-Atlantic and northeast by Friday and into Saturday, AccuWeather meteorologist Bob Larson said. And then... The thermometer falls. Thanks in part due to the return of the polar vortex, the coldest air of the season is poised to roar across the central and eventually eastern U.S. over the next week, the National Weather Service said. How cold? By Monday morning, 88% of the contiguous U.S. could see below freezing temperatures. The bitter air is expected to spill all the way down to the Gulf Coast, and some weather mo- models show the entire state of Texas below freezing Monday and Tuesday. The Weather Service also warned of dangerously low wind chill temperatures for much of the country. Quote, now is the time to check your car batteries. They will be flying off the shelves next week. Close quote, the Weather Service said. Temperatures for the Iowa caucuses Monday evening are forecast to be close to zero degrees across nearly the entire state, the Weather Service in Des Moines said. And finally, computer models hint at the potential for yet another storm next week, January 16-17, one that might finally deliver snow to the sledding-starved big cities of the Mid-Atlantic. Both Washington and Philadelphia have gone nearly two years without seeing even an inch of snowfall. Unlike previous storms, which brought mainly rain, enough cold air could be in place for snow to fall, forecasters said. However, Larson said it's too early to say for sure, and snow lovers might get disappointed again. And more from the front page of the Cape Cod Times. State $250 million disaster relief fund proposed, and this is reported by Kinga Borundi from the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Torrential downpours that flooded farm fields and washed away communities, Arctic temperatures that froze fruit tree blossoms, Massachusetts has been hit again and again throughout the past year with catastrophic weather events, prompting two lawmakers to file bills towards a disaster relief trust fund specifically to help local recovery efforts. In discussing the legislation at a virtual meeting hosted by the International Association of Emergency Managers, Region 1, on Tuesday, the legislators emphasized that the proposed $250 million fund would bring the state in line with 48 others nationwide. Massachusetts and Connecticut are the only two states without a dedicated disaster relief fund. Quote, the fund would be used for all emergency disaster relief, both natural and human-caused, said Senator Joe Comerford, Democrat from Northampton, who filed the legislation with Representative Natalie Blase, Democrat from Deerfield. While she noted that the state was hard hit in 2023 by weather-related disasters, the fund quote would not be limited to climate-related events. The funds would help would alleviate quote damage, loss, hardship or suffering caused by hurricane, tornado, storm, rain, flood, tidal wave, earthquake, volcanic eruption, landslide, mudslide, snowstorm, extreme fire extreme heat, fire, or drought, a mother, among other events, and would supplement any federal disaster funding. Given the uncertainty of a federal disaster declaration, Massachusetts residences, businesses, private nonprofit community organizations, and municipalities can be left footing the entire recovery bill. Quote, we need a dedicated state fund. Bliss said. She noted that state legislators, recognizing the devastation by weather events in the state throughout the year, responded by advancing disaster relief to farmers and municipalities in December. The state allocated $20 million to crop farmers handling freezes and floods and another $15 million to municipalities hard hit by flash floods. Quote, the legislature understood the severe financial burden on the state caused by weather events, close quote, Blaise said. While welcome, the funds were not sufficient to guarantee a full recovery for all those affected. Massachusetts has appealed to President Joe Biden for a disaster declaration that will start the flow of federal dollars into the state and people's pockets. In September, Biden issued a declaration due to the damage caused by Hurricane Lee. However, petitions for disaster relief for the October flash floods affecting Leominster, Fitchburg, and North Attleboro were sent out in December and have yet to be answered. In light of the uncertainty of a federal declaration and the length of time necessary to process the requests and unlock the funds, Massachusetts needs a state disaster fund. Place said. The legislators propose scooping $250 million from the state's capital gains revenue that would otherwise be funneled into the stabilization or rainy day fund and divert the money into disaster relief. That diversion would sidestep the yearly budgetary process and ensure replenishment of the fund as needed and on a yearly basis. Under the proposed legislation, the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency would oversee the fund. In its administrative role, the agency would determine eligibility criteria, create the application and approval process, and be responsible for requesting changes in the state's budgetary, statutory, and regulatory procedures to ensure implementation of the program. The legislators envisioned that the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency would decide how reimbursements were made through grants, matching funds, or cost sharing. It would also be responsible for petitioning the President for an emergency disaster declaration. One concern voiced by those attending the virtual meeting was whether the funds would be immediately available once the program is in place. Jason Maine, director of the emergency management for for Leicester, mentioned two fires the city team managed at a senior housing complex. Evacuations were required and residents were displaced for 65 days during one incident and 85 days during another. Quote, "How soon can we access the funds?" Maine asked wanting to know whether it will be a question of waiting for reimbursement of expended funds or if emergency managers will be able to tap into the fund immediately to pay for out-of-pocket costs. The nuts and bolts of the process, Blaise told Maine, would be determined by the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency once the legislation, already endorsed by some 36 legislators from both houses and both sides of the aisles, is passed. Quote, we have co-sponsors from across the Commonwealth, Comerford said. More Cape and Island news. This article is New Massachusetts Rules for Waterfront Structures Planned, reported by Susan Vaughn. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection is proposing new waterways regulations for the entire Commonwealth to address impacts of climate change, including sea level rise, storm surge, and increased precipitation for existing and proposed structures along the waterfront. Quote, the extreme weather that we're seeing across the Commonwealth, across the nation, across the globe in some instances, is another reminder that climate change is here in Massachusetts and that we are particularly vulnerable to both inland and coastal flooding, close quote, Department of Environmental Protection Commissioner Bonnie Heeple said in dra- announcing the draft regulations late last month in a press conference. Quote, we've seen infrastructure fail. We've seen significant damages, damage to homes and businesses, including farms, and we're seeing the economic re- ramifications of that as well, Heeple said, noting the highest total rainfall on record last summer in Boston. The State Environmental Agency has been working on the regulation updates for a few years, which will make changes to the State Wetlands Protection Act and waterways regulations. The Department has been gathering comments on the proposals from local municipalities and organizations that work with local communities, such as conservation commissions, including 10 sessions and 25 presentations. Edmund Coletta, the agency's director of public affairs, said in a phone call, quote, it's been pretty extensive outreach, Coletta said. Public comment period on the regulations will continue to March the 1st. Three virtual public information sessions on the proposed regulations will be held, two on January 18th and one on January 23rd. Public hearings will be held on Zoom on January 31st and February 1. The State Agency oversees Chapter 91, the Waterways Licensing Program, the Commonwealth's primary tool for protection and promotion of public use of its tidelands, and both coastal and inland waterways, including construction, dredging, and filling in tidelands, great ponds, and certain rivers and streams. Chapter 91 is the oldest program of its kind in the country. The proposed wetlands regulations would protect the coastal floodplain which hosts nearly 55 billion dollars in structures, of which about 40 billion is residential, 12 billion is industrial, and 2.5 billion is commercial, according to the agency. Nearly 2.5 million people live within the 78 coastal communities in Massachusetts, Coletta said, Massachusetts. Coletta said the regulations do not designate specific towns that might be affected, such as on the Cape, but refers to velocity zones, where wave actions tend to be over three feet tall. Heppel said in these outermost areas, there would be no new development permitted but redevelopment would still be allowed, subject to certain standards. She added that about 10% of this most vulnerable section of the coastal floodplain will be covered by these new development restriction regulations. Quote, it's actually quite a small slice when you see the mapping. It's little bits and pieces of the coastline that are still available. Close quote, she said. Heppel told reporters that restricting development in these areas is better for the community and the natural environment, as well as homeowners, who would have to pay to keep up with extensive property damage every year, according to State House News Service report. The department will assist current and potential Chapter 91 licensees by modifying certain requirements to prepare for sea level rise, while maintaining public access and other public benefits. It proposes to require consideration of projected sea level rise for all fill and structures within and outside current flood zone, and for the design life of the fill, structure, or public facilities, not just buildings. A summary of the proposed revisions said they would, quote, modify the height requirements to allow licensees to move utilities from the basement where flooding is likely to occur to the roof. It would also allow solar panels. Moving utilities out of the flood zone is a typical first step for building owners as they prepare for sea level rise, close quote. The standards will also require elevation of new development in the areas of the coastal floodplain. The regulations also encourage nature-based approaches to improve resilience, such as restoration of salt marshes, coastal dunes, and barrier beaches on the coast, as well as inland wetlands. Updated stormwater management standards will reduce stormwater pollution to water bodies throughout the state, helping to improve the water quality of our rivers and streams, the regulations state. Further, the regulations state they are designed to be flexible for homeowners and families. Single-family homes and housing development with four or fewer units are exempted from the stormwater requirements of the wetlands regulations, and new housing developments with five to nine units per lot must meet new standards only to the extent possible. On the CAPE, The Cape Cod Commission staff are currently reviewing the state's proposed wetlands and stormwater regulations. Sarah Colvin, Communications Manager for the Commission, said in an email, The Commission is doing considerable work in this area, which we anticipate will complement the proposed regulations. Our work includes a project that began in January 2023 to develop model wetland regulations and a model zoning bylaw with identified strategies to mitigate and adapt to coastal changes. The project is funded by a grant from the Massachusetts Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs, Colvin said. The Commission is also working with the Cape Cod Cooperative Extension and other agencies, as well as the towns of Provincetown, Truro, Wellfleet, Eastham, and Chatham, in developing regular regulatory tools designed to help them regulate development within the floodplain and improve resiliency to climate change threats. Quote, this project both complements the proposed new regulations and goes beyond giving Cape Cod towns the opportunity to regulate for future floodplain delineation, Colvin's report said. These model regulations may address unsecured structures in the floodplain, damage to seawalls and bulkheads, and planning for future conditions. These regulations will help communities regulate development in areas that will become increasingly vulnerable to the threat of flooding from coastal storms And sea level rise. We're about at the middle of our broadcast and so we turn to the obituaries. We have two today. The first is Kathleen Denise McCarthy from Peltzer. With immense sadness we say our final goodbye to our beloved Kate. Born in West Hartford, Connecticut, Kate was the second-born daughter of Charles and Beverly McCarthy. In Kate's early years, the McCarthy family relocated to Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Kate was a true Cape Codder and loved everything about living on the Cape. It was her home, no matter where life took her. Kate's most immense joy and accomplishment was her daughter, Lillian Chase Tanner. Kate loved being a mother to Lillian, but also found great happiness in the other roles she played in her life fiancé, sister, aunt, daughter, niece, cousin, and friend. Everyone who loved Kate knew they could count on her for safety, truth, and laughter. We will miss Kate's undying loyalty, her kindness, her selflessness, her pure and undeniable beauty even in her darkest moments, her larger-than-life strength, and her ability to create a home in any space she lived in. We all love and miss Kate deeply and vow to carry everything we gained simply by having her for the time she graced us and the world. May she continue to be our angel and watch over us through our best and worst days, and we will look for her in everything pure and beautiful during our lives. Each of us is grateful is better to have had her for the time we did. For that, we are forever grateful. We all love you to the moon and back forever and ever. With our profound and undying love, Kate will be forever in our hearts. Lillian, James, Charles, Beverly, Colleen and Irineo, Maureen and Michael, Eileen and Gemma, Aaron and Sean, Christine, Ryan and Shiloh, Patrick, Isabella, Sarah, Domenico, Jack, Nathan, and Gabriel. And our second obituary is short for John F. Jack Powers, 82, of East Dennis, formerly of Shrewsbury. He passed away peacefully surrounded by his loving family on Sunday, January seventh, 2024. For more information or to leave a message, please visit www.mercadantefuneral.com. And that's M-E-R-C-A-D-A-N-T-E, funeral, one word. Dot com. and back to Cape and Islands News. This article is entitled "More Space, More Parking." Recorded by Denise. Reported by Denise Coffee, Orleans. Baskin's Ace Hardware is moving its store about 1,000 feet down South Orleans Road to the former Christmas Tree Shop stores, with a bigger parking lot and about 10,000 square feet of retail and storage space. Owner Lauren Baskin is looking forward to expanding the hardware store's offerings and services. Baskin signed a rental agreement with property owner Greg Belizikian in late December for a 10-year term with options to extend out for 30 years. She expects to open the new store by May 1st. The Bilizikian Trust has owned the 15,316-square-foot property since 1982, and it is assessed at $2,796,400, according to the assessor's records. Quote, we're excited to have a family business back in that space, Baskin said on Tuesday. We're excited to collaborate with the Bilizikians. Close quote. Both families have long histories on the Cape Cod. Belazekian's parents, Charles and Doreen Belazekian, opened the first Christmas tree shop stores on the Cape in 1970. Eventually, there were four Cape shops, Cape shops, as well as locations throughout New England before they sold to Bed Bath and Beyond in 2003. William and Marilyn Baskin opened their first hardware store in 1977. Over the years, the family business grew to five Cape locations. Lauren Baskin now owns stores in Dennis, South Yarmouth, Harwichport, and Orleans. Her brother, Jim Baskin, owns a store in Brewster. The new location at 20 South Orleans Road has a 9,600-square-foot first floor, with additional storage and office space on the second floor, Baskin said. The current hardware store's footprint at 28 South Orleans Road is only about 4,000 square feet, she said. Plans include expanding the plumbing and electrical supplies section and offering lumber. Baskin wants to provide do-it-yourself weekend warriors with the things they need to finish projects. Nothing that would compete with anyone else in town, she added. Plans include expanding the grilling and lawn and garden sections and offering a wider selection of Benjamin Moore paint. The store will offer professional color consultation services through Susan Pike, who already provides the service at the Dennis and Harwichport stores. The free, no-obligation service will offer color advice to customers. Baskin wants to cater to contractors as well as customers looking to redesign and reconfigure their homes. The current store offers about 22,000 unique SKUs or items. Baskin expects that number to rise to 28,000 to 30,000 SKUs when the move is completed. ACE will help with financing, coordination, merchandising, and logistics. New flooring, lighting, and signage will be installed before the opening. Baskin is looking to longtime store manager Jim Morton to take pencil to paper to set up the new store. Baskin called him a magician at figuring out how to make the current 4,000-square-foot store have as much as a 10,000-square-foot store might have. Now that he has more space to play with, Baskin said he set himself a task to pack as many offerings in as possible. Quote, we'll have more space, more parking. We're really excited about it, Baskin said. The larger store will present opportunities for additional employment. Currently, the store has six employees, and Baskin expects to hire an additional two to three people closer to the opening date. She credits her parents with setting the tone for treating employees like family. Quote, I'm really proud of our culture, Baskin said. We always call it hotel California. People just don't leave. Close quote. Baskin's Ace Hardware was a finalist in the Cape Cod Times Best of the Best Survey in twenty twenty two for the best employer in the ten to one hundred employees category. Quote, my parents set a beautiful tone, Baskin said. They gave a great offering to the community by establishing a business and operating it with integrity and grace. In other news, this article is entitled, Austin Wanted to Keep Cancer Struggle Private, Many Men Reluctant to Share Health Details, reported by Charles Trepenny. Lloyd Austin's struggle with prostate cancer, or more specifically, his refusal to readily disclose it to the public, has launched a firestorm of criticism and put the White House on the defensive. Many health experts, however, say the defense secretary's hesitancy shouldn't come as a surprise. Men commonly struggle with sharing weaknesses, in part due to our culture's view of masculinity, even when it comes to important health matters. Add on top of that the complications of prostate cancer in particular, which can include the loss of sexual functioning, and you've got an illness that is especially difficult for men to admit they have, though it is one of the most common cancers. Quote, I find that it's something that a lot of men don't talk about, said Dr. Samuel Haywood, a urologist specializing in prostate cancer. Facing a fury of questions about Austin's illness, the Pentagon finally disclosed Tuesday he has been hospitalized since January the 1st because of complications from prostate cancer surgery. The Defense Department didn't alert the White House that Austin was in the hospital until three days after he was admitted and didn't make the information public until late last Friday, the day after the White House was notified. The Pentagon's press secretary, Air Force Major General Pat Ryder, told reporters Tuesday the nature of Austin's illness was behind his reluctance to release information about it. Quote, prostate cancer and the associated procedures are obviously deeply personal, Ryder said, adding that Austin takes responsibility for failing to disclose his illness but plans to stay on the job. Psychologists say cultural attitudes and pressures regarding masculinity could have played a role in Austin's hesitancy to reveal his diagnosis. These expectations include that men remain sexually vigorous and self-sufficient throughout their lives. Prostate cancer can sometimes cause erectile dysfunction and urinary incontinence, according to Mayo Clinic, causing deep shame for some men. Quote, masculinity is in part based on self-efficacy and things like losing control of your bladder or experiencing pain when urinating or having difficulty with the sexual functioning can really impact men's self-esteem, said Eric Anderson, a licensed manly inf- marriage and family therapist who specializes in men's issues and anxiety. Quote, to admit that that difficulty in functioning it really feels like talking about a very vulnerable part of yourself. Close quote. Haywood said prostate cancer is very treatable, and only about 3% of men die from it. Still, he says men's reluctance to share their health issues with each other makes treating prostate cancer more difficult. This is because family history impacts one's prostate cancer risk, and many men don't know if they have a family history of the illness because their relatives don't want to talk about it. Quote, the only way that we can help you is if we talk about it to each other, he said. While there's no self-check for prostate cancer, it would be great if it was something that men were, were talking about and saying, hey, did you get your prostate checked? Have you talked to your doctor about this? That would be an ideal world, close quote. For some national news, this article is entitled Judge. Trump can't give his own closing argument. And this is reported by Jennifer Peltz and Jake Offenharts for Associated Press. Donald Trump won't make his new, his own closing argument in his New York civil business fraud trial after his lawyers objected to the judge's insistence that the former president would stick to quote, "relevant matters." Judge Arthur Engoron rescinded permission on Wednesday, a day ahead of closing arguments in the trial. The trial could cost Trump hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties and strip him of his ability to do business in New York. His lawyers had signaled last week that he planned to take the extraordinary step of delivering a summation personally, in addition to arguments from his legal team. Trump is a defendant in the case, brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James. She claims his net worth was inflated by billions of dollars on financial statements that helped him secure business loans and insurance. The former president and current Republican 2024 frontrunner denies any wrongdoing, and he has lambasted the case as a hoax and a political attack on him. James and the judge are Democrats. It's extremely unusual for people who have lawyers to give their own closing arguments. In an email exchange that happened over recent days and was filed in court Wednesday, Engoron initially approved the unusual request— saying that he was, quote, including to let everyone have his or her say, quote. But he said Trump would have to limit his remarks to the boundaries that cover attorneys' closing arguments, quote, commentary on the relevant material facts that are in evidence and application of the relevant law to those facts, close quote. He would not be allowed to introduce new evidence, quote, comment on irrelevant matters or, quote, Deliver a campaign speech or impugn the judge, his staff, the attorney general, her lawyers, or the court system, the judge wrote. Trump attorney Christopher Keyes responded that those limitations were, quote, fraught with ambiguities, creating the substantial likelihood for misinterpretation or an unintended violation. Engeron said that they were reasonable, normal limits, but Keyes termed them very unfair, quote. You are not allowing President Trump, who has been wrongfully demeaned and belittled by an out-of-control, politically motivated attorney general, to speak about the things that must be spoken about, the lawyer wrote. After not hearing from Trump's lawyers by a noon Wednesday deadline, Angeron wrote that he assumed Trump was not agreeing to the ground rules and therefore would not be speaking. Taking on a role usually performed by an attorney is risky for any defendant. But Trump's desire to speak in court was potentially even more precarious as he already ran afoul of the judge over prior comments about the state. Engeron imposed a limited gag order barring all participants in the trial from commenting about court staffers after Trump made a disparaging social media post about the judge's law clerk on the second day of the trial in October. The post included a false insinuation about the clerk's personal life. The judge later fined Trump a total of $15,000, saying he'd repeatedly violated the order. Trump's defense team is appealing it. During the recent email exchange about Trump's potential summation— Engeron warned Trump's lawyers that if the former president violated the gag order, he'd be removed from the courtroom and fined at least $50,000. Trump testified in the case in November, sparring verbally with the judge and state lawyers as he defended himself and his real estate empire. He considered but skipped a second round of testimony during a portion of the trial when his own lawyers were calling witnesses. After teasing his return appearance, he changed course and said he had, quote, nothing more to say. And now for some CAPE sports news. This article is entitled, Easy Buckets, Born Girls Basketball Unbeaten After Seven Games, reported by Courtney Jacobs. The Bourne High School girls basketball team is off to its best start to a season in over a decade, 2023 to 2012 to 2013 after a 66 to 13 win over West Bridgewater the ladies the lady canalmen remained unbeaten at 7 and 0 on the season an unblemished record is impressive but what's more important is the way they are winning games Bourne has now won two games by at least 50 points two games by at least 40 one by 36 points, and their closest game of the season was a 57-43 to 43 win over Case. To sum it up, the Lady Canalmen are hotter than a summer day on a Cape Cod beach. Born head coach Steve Wenzel said it starts with a defense. Wenzel said the team has a motto here called Mindset, which is to stop the ball first and get it ahead. Quote, defense first creates easy offense, Wenzel said. Quote, share the basketball. When they use that mentality of a great defensive game to turn into easy buckets, it allows us to control what we want to dictate in the game, whether it be a trapping scheme, changing up the defense, or whatever it might be, close quote. Junior captain Paige Maida agreed with Wenzel and said that the one 2-2 2-2 two, two, defense is what has borne playing so well. This defense helps guard the perimeter better, making fast breaks transition easier and is good for trapping opponents. Quote, We always come out really strong, Meta said. We're like a fast break team, so we look up the court fast. We normally start with a press, and the press just turns into more and more. Close quote. In the first quarter, the Lady Canalmen started off with a full-court press defense that turned into five quick points and a timeout by West Bridgeport West Bridgewater just 40 seconds into the game. The defensive pressure led to a 22-2 to score at the end of the first quarter. Just like Maida said, after that came more and more. Board, Bourne held East Bridgewater to zero field goals in the second quarter and led 44-3 to three at halftime. Quote, I feel like with us playing with our hands out, jumping and not reaching, it helps us stay out of foul trouble and not let them score, sophomore guard Aubrey France said. West, Bridge Porter, West Bridgewater was missing one of their players in the paint, and Bourne took full advantage of that. Quote, up top, we stopped the ball from getting to the middle, Meta said. We didn't allow them to get past the three-point line, which allowed them not to get the hoop at all. In the second half, Bourne only allowed 10 points. This is nothing new, as Lady Canal men's defense has only allowed 25 points per game this season. The win over West was the third time they held an oppo- opponent under 20 points. Bourne is not only a unit on defense, but also on offense. Maeda is the best offensive weapon for the Lady Canal men. As a sophomore last season, she led the South Coast Conference at 17.6 points per game. In addition to that, she led her team in points, three, free throw percentage, steals, and charges taken, and was a named an SCC All-Star for the second time. Quote, Paige is our leader. She's someone that we look to at all times. She is the captain as a junior for a reason, Wenzel said. In the win over West Bridgewater, Maida led Bourne with a game game high of 17 points. That includes two three-pointers, but she was far from the only contributor. Eight of the nine active players scored. Haley McDonald had thirteen points, while France added eleven points, three three pointers for the for the other players in double figures. Regan Blake, eight points, McKinley Wenzel six points, first quarter, Jill Allen five points, Nola Timo, four points, and Eleno Timo, two points, each chipped in for the win. Quote, I think each player has a different role, Maida said. We all pick each other up. If one player is having an off night, somebody else contributes in different ways. They find their confidence." Close quote. The Lady Canalmen have a week off before they seek to continue their unbeaten start against Somerset Berkeley on January the 16th. Until then, they will have some more practice time, which is another factor for their win streak." Quote, "I feel like it all starts from practice because we always take it very seriously," France said. We run the drills correctly, and we just take everything seriously because when it comes to the game time, we're ready for whatever comes our way, Close quote. And here's a quick story about how to stay healthy. It's entitled Diet Can Help Decrease Chances of Memory Loss by Lisa Conway, special to Florida Today. Maintaining good cognitive health involves a combination of lifestyle choices, including diet. While there is currently no magic food or technique that will prevent memory loss, some nutrients and habits most certainly contribute to brain brain health. You may be surprised by some of the suggestions in my top ten list. 1. Eat a brain-healthy diet. Include omega-3 fatty acids. These essential nutrients can be found in fatty fish, like salmon, flax seeds, chia seeds, walnuts, and more. Consume antioxidants from fruits and vegetables. Berries, leafy green vegetables, and brightly colored fruits protect the brain from oxidative stress. Ensure adequate vitamins in your diet, especially B, whole grains, eggs, leafy greens, and vitamin E, nuts and seeds. 2. Stay hydrated. Drink water. Dehydration can impair cognitive function. It's critical to maintain an adequate water intake daily. 3. Maintain a healthy lifestyle. Engage in regular physical exercise. Exercises increase oxygenated blood flow to the whole body, including the brain, which helps to promote overall cognitive function. Get enough sleep. Quality and consistent sleep is crucial for memory consolidation and overall brain health. Four, manage stress. Chronic stress can negatively impact memory. Practice stress-reducing activities such as yoga, meditation, or deep breathing exercises. Five, socialize. Maintain connections with others. Socializing engages the brain and may help delay the onset of memory-related conditions. Six, challenge your brain. Keep your brain active with mind-stimulating activities like puzzles, reading, new skill learning, or actions that require critical thinking. Seven, limit alcohol and avoid smoking. Excessive alcohol use can impair memory and cognitive function on a short-term and long-term basis. Smoking has also been shown to contribute to long-term cognitive impairment. 8. Control chronic conditions. Conditions such as diabetes, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol can affect cognitive health if not properly controlled. 9. Add turmeric to your diet. The active compound in the curry spice turmeric has anti-inflammatory and antioxidant components, Some studies suggest it may help in delaying brain disease and even normal age-related memory issues. And ten, go Mediterranean. The Mediterranean diet, rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, fish, and healthy fats, has been lauded for its ability to lower risk of cognitive decline. That's all we have time for today. This is Daphne, and it's been my pleasure to read with you the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, January the 11th. Hope to see you next week.